About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Father, we're grateful that you have given us this time on this day for us to come together and to praise you and to be reminded that we are not alone, not just not alone in the universe because you are the ultimate reality, your presence, your person, but that we're not alone on this planet, that we go nowhere in this city, that you don't see us, and that we don't have brothers and sisters in faith and in Christ that walk alongside of us. And so for all of these blessings, Father, we, we have joy in our hearts and we are happy. And even though some of our paths ascend towards the heights and some descend toward the depths, we fear not because you are with us your comfort, your power, your wisdom, your love, forgiveness, and grace at all times. And as we come at this point, Father, in our morning, to be reminded of great truths that come to us from your word, your spirit, we ask you, Father, to give us eyes that see and ears that hear, and that we turn toward you. And this is what we pray with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when you think about all of the stuff that, that's being written about Christendom, you know, it kind of depends on, uh, on your mood and kind of your, your, your DNA a little bit, and it also kind of depends on who you're listening to, but it's kind of a mixed bag, the report of what's happening in the United States and in the Western world when it comes to Christianity. Uh, one one fellow that I think writes in a, in a pretty sensible way says that, that bas basically nothing has really changed except the comfort level that people have in saying that they are not Christian. And so he says you have basically three groups of, of people in the Christian faith in the United States. You have the first group that is more of a cultural Christian. They, they say that they're Christian because at some point they began to believe that they lived in a Christian nation or they had a Christian family or Christian grandparents or at one point they were um, married in a Christian church that they may go to once or twice a year and that those particular folks are becoming more and more comfortable with checking the box on the, uh, the, the religious affiliation boxes on any kind of a form saying that they're unaffiliated or that there is none there's no religious body that they belong to. 
Then you have what he calls the congregational. You go from cultural to congregational. Congregational are the ones that basically say, there's a, there's, there's a church somewhere in my life. If you were to ask me uh, if I'm a Christian, I would say yes. If you ask me which church I belong to or what church I attend, there would be some church down the road that maybe I remembered or was, uh, one that I was at two weeks ago that I would probably give you as the answer. And then you go from cultural to congregational to what he calls convictional Christians. And those are the ones who daily are, are trying to walk in the steps of Jesus. On the, so basically what he's saying is that nothing has really changed except the way that people identify themselves, but that the numbers are, are going to be about the same, recognizing that those three groups exist. On the other side of the spectrum, you've got those that are saying that there are less churches or less Christians. There's, you know, everything's just kind of going downhill. And I want you to know that probably in terms of the data, in terms of the facts, I'm probably somewhere in the middle. But I don't panic because I believe that Jesus Christ is still the head of the church. And I still believe that God is in charge of all of the universe, including His creation, called earth on which we stand and live and live out our life of faith and so we come to a passage like first timothy chapter 2 where paul is writing to some folk he's actually writing to a, to a fellow by the name of timothy who is ministering to some folk in ephesus and he says this is one of the things you got to remember timothy that god wants all people to be saved god wants all people to be saved, which means to come to an understanding of who the Christ is and to come to a knowledge of the truth, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom, which means that he is the one that has delivered us from our captor, sin. He's the one that's paid the ransom price in order to rescue us or liberate us or free us up from that which held us captive. He paid himself, gave himself a ransom for all people. Now, you know, really part of the challenge, when you think about the context of Paul writing in the first century, part of the challenge of understanding this verse is to understand it in the light of the fact that it was written during the most unchurched period of time in the history of the world. You know, today, you go anywhere in the world, just about maybe a few, few, a handful of nations in the world, anywhere you go, and nearly every place you go, as a village or city or town or whatever, you are going to find God's people gathered. You're going to find God's people gathered. Not so in the first century, when Paul goes to Ephesus, when Paul goes to Thessalonica, when everybody left Jerusalem and went into Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. They were going into towns, they were going into places, they were going into cultures and languages and places where the name Jesus Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, had never been heard before. And we think about all of the resources that we have today, and it's true that we have them, and it's true that we need to take advantage of them. But in the first century, there was an understanding that this is who we are in God's kingdom, and this is what it is that God wants happening in His kingdom as we're transferring people from darkness into light and all of those kinds of things. And they went into the most unchurched world ever in the history of modern history, and the world was turned upside down. 
part of the challenge for us as we think about what it is that Paul's writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is to understand that it is still the gospel. is still the power of God unto salvation. And that's where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 16. Paul has arrived in Philippi, and Paul and his crew not only get to Philippi, but they're looking for a synagogue. And believe it or not, there's not a synagogue in Philippi. There's not the the prerequisite ten Jewish men in order to establish a synagogue. And so they go outside the city gates. They go on on a Sabbath morning to a place of prayer, probably about a mile maybe away from the city gates at the river Gangetus. They speak to a group of women that are there. There's not the ten men to make a, uh, a synagogue. So it's basically a gathering of women. And there is a particular lady that, that Paul tells us about, or Luke tells us from, from Paul's experience in Philippi. He's there with him. One of those ladies is, it goes by the name of Lydia. And she is a dealer in the expensive purple cloth industry of the first century. And she is listening intently and she understands what it is that that paul begins to say about the gospel and about the christ and god opens up her heart and she responds and she is baptized and she is a lady of no small means and she loves this message that paul has preached and the crew that is with him they're all invited to stay at her house she's a woman of means she can take care of them as we continue on in acts chapter 16 some unspecified time later Paul is going again to the place of prayer. He is met by this female slave that in the original language we are told that she has the spirit of a, of a python. That is, she's inspired by the Greek god Apollo and could tell the future. And she makes a lot of money for those men who own her as her slave keeper. And she starts following Paul around and she starts saying in a loud voice for everybody to hear that these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she goes on and on and on and follows Paul and follows Paul. And finally, Luke says, Paul would never say this, but Luke says he got a little bit annoyed. And he decided if the time is right and he takes the demon out of her and she's in her right mind. And now that she no longer has this spirit of the python or the inspired by Apollo and is no longer making money for her masters, they get a little ticked off at Paul and they decide that they're going to bring some trouble down on him. And so they go before the city magistrates. They accuse Paul and all of his entourage of throwing the city of Philippi into an uproar. There's a riot that starts up. Paul and Silas at one point are beaten so severely that they can hardly stand up and they're thrown into prison. They're thrown into jail. And about midnight on that same day, while feet in stock and in the dark, Paul and Silas are singing hymns. Are singing hymns. Isn't it kind of ironic? I mean, sometimes it's hard for us to sing, sing hymns here because it's too hot in the auditorium. But they've been beaten and they're bleeding and they're cut up and they're busted up and their feet are in stocks, which is not, you know, it's not like being in a bargain lounger. And it's dark, there's no light, and who knows what's going to happen. And so what do they do? They start singing hymns. They sing hymns while sitting in the stocks. And then all of a sudden, sometime after midnight, there's this earthquake. And all of the prison doors fly open. And and the jailer thinks that everyone is headed out the door because that's one of the reasons he has a job, is to keep everybody on the inside. 
and there are dire straits for him in letting or being accused or being at least responsible for allowing all of these prisoners out. And he is about to kill himself. He is about to fall on his sword. And Paul calls out to him and says, don't do that. We are here. And at that point, he shares the gospel and talks to this jailer about the Messiah. And the Messiah and his family taking care of the wounds that have been heaped upon Paul and Silas. Immediately after that, the entire family is baptized. One of the really great commentators on the book of Acts, I think, just does a phenomenal job in showing something that when we read usually the story of Acts 16 and what happens in Philippi, we just kind of run over it quickly to get the facts, and we don't really see what's happening here. But one of the things that he shows in his commentary is just how different all of these people are who come to faith or who are in, uh, uh, whose lives intersect the gospel in Philippi. In terms of nationality... Lydia, we are told, is from Thyatira, which is modern-day Turkey, which means that she is Asian even though she is living in Philippi, which is in Europe. The slave girl, because of the way that she's described, is probably Greek. And the jailer, who is taking care of, of the prison there in Philippi, is probably Roman because all the good civil servant jobs went to retired Roman soldiers. So in terms of nationality, these people come from different worldviews, they come from different parts of the world, but they all find themselves in the city of Philippi. But their nationalities could be no different than they are in this story. Socially, they are different too. Lydia is from Thyatira, yet she had a home in Philippi, which meant that she was probably very well-to-do. She's the dealer in the purple dyes, which is what Thyatira is known for. If you want to put it into modern terms, she is probably some sort of a fashionista. She is um, uh, uh, probably living in a place like the Dominion. And she probably has a house in Paris someplace. She probably watches on a regular basis Project Runway. She is a very well-to-do lady with power and influence. And it's all in that, that devil wears Prada kind of atmosphere. Remember the movie. Then you come to the slave girl. She's at the other, utter, utter end of the spectrum. She is not free. She is a slave. And not only is she a slave, but she is a slave that is very highly exploited. And then you have the jailer, whom you might say is a solid member of the working class, He's blue-collar, he's an ex-GI, probably living near a place like Fort Sam Houston, and he is, he is, he is probably very much a, a practical, pragmatic kind of an individual. And you have these three individuals who have never, ever run into each other except now in the way that they have been called together in the gospel. But there's also a third way in which they're different. And that is, as the commentator says, that they're different from each other personally. Lydia, with her background and her life experience, and what she's been able to achieve, uh, achieve as a woman in, in sort of migrating as well as navigating through a, a man's world, she has been able to achieve a lot. Therefore, she probably has a tremendous amount of intelligence, high IQ, 
And her background, her life experience means that she probably has some intellectual needs. She needs facts. She needs truth. She needs data. She needs things in order to make a decision. And things have to make sense to her through reflection and through conversation and talking things out at the Starbucks. The slave girl, on the other hand, because she is on the utter other end of the spectrum, has emotional needs and psychological needs. This poor girl is not in her right mind. You can't have a conversation with her. You can't. She is a slave, and she is fractured, and she needs healing. And then you have the jailer, who's the pragmatist, practical thinking. He needs things to work. And for him, that means being able to get home after his shift at the prison and the jail to get home safely, along with all of the other crew members on his shift. He's probably a guy because he's been a soldier all his life. He's impatient with the academics. Probably doesn't like the guys that come out and the, the women that would come out of what they call the ivory tower. He's probably a little uneasy with his own emotional life because it's kind of hard to be emotional and sensitive and intuitive as a man if you're working with criminals. The jailer would probably say something like this. I'd rather see a sermon than hear it. But then there's this fourth area, and that is they are, and this is where I think they find their common ground, is in the area of spirituality. Lydia is spiritually empty. She has achieved a great deal. You know, being from Thyatira and being across the Aegean Sea and ending up in Philippi and and, and having a house there, even though she's from a, a different part of the world, she has achieved some things that are difficult for a woman. And Luke describes her in, in Luke chapter in, uh, in Acts chapter 16 as a worshiper of God, which means that she was a Gentile who has at, at some point turned away from her pagan roots and pagan religion. Any person, as you know, even in our own day, any person that culturally on the inside, their inside worldview, inside internal culture, anytime you turn away from roots like that, you're seeking something to fill a void in your life. She has become a worshiper of God because she has found something in Judaism that is beginning to make sense to her of how the world operates. She is affluent, she is influential, she is, she is powerful, she is in control, but there is something that's missing in her life. And so on every Saturday morning, she gets up and she goes to a place of prayer. And then the slave girl is the opposite. Where Lydia is controlled and she has a handle on her own reality, the slave girl is out of control. In verse 16, they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. It literally says, as I alluded to uh, a few minutes earlier, she has the spirit of Apollo or the spirit of a, of, of a python. 
in Delphi, there was a temple of Apollo that the oracle of Delphi lived in where you could predict the future. And that temple was, was, was guarded by this gigantic python. And in those days, when you came upon a person like this girl who would speak wildly and make predictions, you would say that she had the spirit of a python. Now, this is where the story goes even further south. How did she end up a slave? Somewhere in her family background, her behavior became so erratic, or her behavior became so embarrassing or it became so troubling, or it became such a liability that she was sold into slavery by her family. And not only that, her family was making money off of her. This woman is exploited. Exploited profoundly. And, and when Paul and Silas encounter this woman and hear what she has to say, they know that she's possessed by an evil spirit. And then you come to the Roman jailer who probably doesn't know anything about God at all. He knows about gods with the little g, but nothing at all about God with the big g, and he probably cares nothing about God. He'd rather be with his mates in the garage watching soccer or football or baseball on a Saturday afternoon. He doesn't care about God because God has not been very good to him, probably in his thinking, because of the lot that he is in at the end of his life. And so they're all different. Nationality, socioeconomically, their personal needs, their personality, and their spirituality. And yet, God comes after, one of the, after every one of these people in Philippi. And so God comes after Lydia like this. Paul shows up on the Sabbath morning. It's a prayer meeting. Here's a new fella. Here's some more people. Please join in. And as they're praying and they're probably worshiping God together, Paul sees this as an opportunity for him to talk about his own worldview and to begin to take the, the basic facts of Judaism and to weave them into the history of the Messiah and the gospel. And we're told by Luke, because he was there, that there's this message that he gives that touches on some of the things that Lydia has already learned as a worshiper of God among the Jews. And so here you have Lydia, a dealer in the purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who is a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. She's been thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking and, and, and looking at the data and the truths and the facts. And finally, there is this fellow, this, this, this short little fellow, rabbi, trained by Gamaliel, who comes to, into her inner sanctum of prayer and worship down by a river with, with other worshipers of God, and he supplies her and makes sense of the story, supplies her with the facts and the data to make sense of where Judaism is, is headed. And in Philippi, God helps Lydia to get it, to respond to it, and this is where her emptiness in life ends. Now comes the slave girl who is possessed Nobody is going to walk up to her and say, would you like to get together at the Starbucks for a Bible study? Could we have a conversation about God? Nobody would go up to her and say, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven or to hell? She is possessed. 
And Paul confronts, in the name of Jesus, the bad, bad master who has powerfully enslaved this girl, and she has an experience, an emotional and psychological experience of the Jesus who is more good and more beautiful than the evil spirit that is in her. And she becomes healed. Now you've got the jailer. With Lydia and the slave girl, Paul brings sort of this, this, this message. It's, it's, it's a, 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 a direct um, uh, attack on, 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 on knowledge and upon an evil spirit with the knowledge and the news of the gospel and the power of God. But now you've got the jailer. And with him, it's going to be a little bit different. They bring Paul and Silas into the jail, and they tell the jailer, who has been trained for these kinds of things, to take care of these two rascals. And that would be like asking Jack Bauer to take care of someone. He takes them, and he puts their feet in stocks, and the stocks were probably very, very uncomfortable. They were probably wide, and for a short guy like Paul, is probably very uncomfortable. But two things happen. Paul and Silas are not going to be controlled by their outside circumstances, but their inside joy is going to come out It's singing praises to God at midnight in this kind of a place. And the jailer's listening. He's never seen someone with joy so deep that they can worship and sing after being tortured what the jailer is witnessing is people who have been so transformed with joy so deep that even bad stuff like torture cannot even take that away from them And then the second astonishing thing that takes place is that there's this earthquake. It opens all of the doors. It was law among these jailers that if a prisoner escaped, that the jailer's life was forfeit. And so as this man is about to fall on his own sword, knowing what is down the road for him, Paul and Silas stop him and tell him that no one is left, that that, that he doesn't need to do that. We're all here. And there's something about your life flashing before your eyes and it coming to an abrupt stop as somebody says, you don't need to do that. We're all here. What he has experienced is evil being overcome with good. And he has never seen a joy like this, nor has he ever experienced a kindness like this. And it just completely un- unravels his worldview. And he takes them home and he dresses their wounds and immediately they are baptized. And now you have this church in Philippi. One of the things that this, this story always reminds me of is that the gospel is, is a game changer. When it comes to people's lives, it's a game changer. As disciples of Jesus, we we seek to live our lives as Paul has tried to do and as as Paul has, has, uh, has, has, has written to the church in Philippi. We try to live our lives as lights that are shining in darkness. It is true 
that we live in a post-Christian nation. And as much as we might think that political processes will change that culture, in the end it will not, because political processes do not change people unless it makes them mad. At the same time, the Christian faith, as well as any and all faiths, can't be forced upon people. It is up to the church. It is up to a church like ours in a city like this to do what only the church can do, and that is to point people to the Christ. And in pointing people to the Christ, to point them to the only one that can make a difference, that can literally change the heart and soul and mind and body of a human being. And it does not matter if they are up-and-coming people like Lydia or down-and-out like the slave girl or somewhere in between like the jailer. The, the gospel is a game-changer when it comes to human life. And what we do is what Paul wrote to that church in Colossae. He says, God uses us and the gospel and the death of Christ and all of that to rescue us from the dominion of darkness and to bring us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. Political law will not do that. The gospel is the one that makes people convicted. And then secondly, the gospel message is best communicated by a gospel life. We say this all the time. We'll keep saying it and saying it, but your life may be the only Bible that some people read, and the one thing that no one but no one can argue with is a changed life. Our message and our lives, wherever that life is, at work, in the car, on 410, in rush hour, in the neighborhood, at the home, at the hospital, our message and our lives, how we live, church, go together. And the jailer had never met a prisoner in all his years who was more concerned about the jailer, about him, than escaping and saving his own skin. It's that kind of kindness. It's that kind of kindness that makes your life an invitation. I want to suggest four things very quickly with how your life can communicate the gospel and become an invitation. First is to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know what you are if you do all these good things in the city of San Antonio to bless people but you have not love? You and I are clanging cymbals. Which means it might get people's attention for a minute, but when, and listen, as a, a 35 year drummer, I know what happens when you hit a cymbal really, really hard, right? It gets loud, but guess what? It goes away. Love your neighbor as yourself. Two, practice the golden rule, as Jesus taught it in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12. Is it so hard to treat somebody in the way that you would want to be treated? Is it, is it so hard to, to, to treat somebody in a way that makes a difference in their day because they're being treated by somebody who loves them, loves their neighbor? 
And then thirdly, be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. You know, James doesn't say it this way in, in James chapter 1, verse 19. He says, you know, you need to be slow to speak and, and, and slow to anger, and you need to be quick to listen. You know how his, his big brother Jesus would have said it? He said, that's how you put the golden rule in every discussion that you have and conversation you have in the day. Listen, be slow to speak, and slow to anger. And, and I, just, I just think that when we get our mind around what happened in the first century and what is possible in the 21st century, and we understand that the gospel is a game changer in people's lives, people that we interact with every day, people that we see who are like Lydia, who have some, some degree of, of knowledge, they have some sophistication when it comes to the academics, who have some, some, some level of understanding when it comes to the sciences, but still, it doesn't quite make sense, this idea of the world and the universe and creation and God and the Messiah and these people that call themselves Christians. It is a game changer when we are able to sit down, slow to speak, quick to listen, uh, uh, slow to speak, and, and slow to anger in such a way that we help them put the pieces together. We want to be a church that gives people the time to get it and to respond to it the way that Lydia did. How many years had she been listening to Torah? And how many years had she been pondering and thinking about Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy before this cat by the name of Paul shows up who is from Tarsus and he begins to talk to her about Jesus Christ the Messiah and his own encounter and his own issue with the exact same things. And then you've got this, this, this woman who like the, 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 uh, the, the, the man with the spirit of legion the, the, all those demons that Sean talked about in Mark chapter 5 in, in, uh, in the communion devotional. I mean, just, there's, there's this place in all of our lives to be kind and to love somebody and for them to, and, and for them in all of the fractured thinking. I mean, have you, have, when's the last time you talked with a homeless person? Has there ever been one that made a lot of sense to you? Thinking has been fractured. Life is broken. And then you've got the guy like the jailer. You know, the person that's tough, the person that you might be a little bit afraid to talk to because you don't want him to get mad at you or you don't want a, a real man's man like this guy to think poorly of you or to think that, you know, you know as a Christian, that you're something that you're not. But the gospel is a game changer. And there are people all over the world throughout all of history who seemed, in the eyes of human beings, to be outside the parameter and the scope of the gospel, that they'll never accept it, they'll never believe it, they don't know that they need it, they don't think they need it, they, they've had bad whatever it might be. And somehow the gospel comes in and makes them a different individual. But it begins with folks like us who are going to love God and love people. And we're going to practice the golden rule. We're going to treat people like they're made in the image of God. We're going to treat people the way that we would want to be treated. And in our conversations and in with our dealings with them and our interactions with them, to, to be slow to speak and slow to anger and quick to listen. In other words, in all of our conversations, whether it's a waitress or it's a cashier, or whatever it might be, 
practice the golden rule when it comes to our, our, our speech being seasoned with salt, as Paul would say in Colossians chapter 4, so that I may present, as you pray for me, the gospel as I should, clearly. Ben's going to lead us in a song, right? Is that a yes? Yes. yes. <laughs> and during the singing of this song, we're going to have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front, and this is what these guys are down front for. Uh, I, you know, we, we don't really know where everybody is this morning, spiritually speaking or emotionally or whatever, but what we want is you to know that we have men at this congregation who have dedicated themselves to seeing you grow into the likeness of Jesus. And it may be that you need to begin that journey by hearing that gospel and understanding it and responding to it through confession and repentance and baptism and these kinds of things. These men will explain this to you. Or it may be that you need the prayers of the congregation to aid you or to strengthen you or to take away your fear or help you with a decision, whatever it might be. Whatever it might be, come down.